is booming. We love it. Awesome. Good morning, everybody. Lovely. If I've not met you before, let me have a little look. If I've not met you, my name is Julie, and it's my honor to speak to you this morning. I know there's lots of people and families that have joined us in the recent months and weeks, and so if we've never met, my name is Julie, and I'm really, really pleased to talk to you this morning. Before we start, a big shout out to my husband, Neil. We are 18 years married today. Yeah. Our marriage has come of age. And here we are looking super awkward because our photographer was like pose. And we were like, we're not posy people. So is this what you want? And uh, there we were, 21 and 26, I think, as we got married. So if you're good at quick maths, you can work out our ages there. Happy birthday. And happy anniversary. It's not your birthday, but we'll just throw that one in there. Amazing. Well, this morning, I'm going to talk to you out of the Gospel of John. And um, me and Neil and our family this year, at the start of the year, did something called the Shred. And it's where you uh, read the Bible, the entirety of the Bible, in a month. Um, or, so we listen to it on audio Bible because it's a for us the easiest way to do it. So it took about six weeks for me this time. I've managed to squeeze it into a month before, but with a toddler in tow, that was significantly more difficult this year. So we managed it in six weeks. And I highly recommend you do it. It sounds daunting. It absolutely is. You've got to give up like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok for the month because you can't, there's, there's no time. You can't have a time competing that. You've got to use every spare moment that you have to do it, but it's really worthwhile doing. And it helps you to see some really big, broad strokes, big themes, big ideas. And then it also, the little, little details will pique your interest. And so I love doing it at the start of the year because then it gives me sermon material for the entirety of the year because I have my notes open and as I'm listening, if something intrigues me or I listen to something and I'm like, I don't get that at all or I hear a little detail, I take notes as I go like quickly because it's going quick. But I just put a little, pop a little note in, I do a voice note and then I come back to it. And this preach came out of just a very tiny detail that I noticed as we were speeding through the book of John. Because when you're doing the shred, you're in the Old Testament for I think it's like 24, five, yeah, 24 days. You just like Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament. And then in the last seven days, you just power right through the New Testament. And you do the Gospel of John in like a day. Also with most of Mark and Luke as well, because he's just going so quick. But it's really worthwhile doing so. My hope and my prayer as I've been preparing this for you today is that Jesus would meet you where you are, because he knows, as you are, because he absolutely knows how you are today, and that once again, as we submit our life to the scripture and the words that he chose for us to have, that we would say again, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you. Can we agree that that's a good thing to go out from this morning to say that, yes, we want to follow him. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And this morning, Lord, we know there's things in our life that shouldn't be there. We know that there's attitudes and ways of thinking and things that we've done that don't glorify you. And this morning, as we come to you, the great physician, we ask you, Lord God, to help us submit to you once again, to help us follow you once again, to help us say yes to you and all of our brokenness once again this morning, and that Jesus, you be glorified by the end of this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to read three little accounts in John, just for some context, because we're going to jump 
right into like the middle of an action sequence. So just to let you know what's been happening up to this point. We've had all of Jesus' teaching ministry. We've just had foot washing. We've had the Last Supper. Um, Jesus has talked to the group about somebody in the group that's going to betray them. That would be a super awkward moment if you're in that group and there's not a lot of you. And Jesus is like, one of you is going to betray me. We're like, oh, awkward. And then he prophesies to Peter about his denial. And that's where we're going to center our time today. It's in all four Gospels, which usually means if it's in all four, it's important. The writers really, really wanted us to understand something that's happening and going on because they all put it in. And so we have this account. We're going to read it in John and we'll add in some little details from others. So we're going to start in verse 31. It'll be on the screen for you as well. When he had gone out, that's Judas. So Judas has now gone out. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. There's lots of glorifiers going on there. And just a little note, God's idea of glory and our idea of glory, very, very different ideas. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you and you also are to love one another. And by this will people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Matthew and Mark had this little detail for us. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So that's nice of Matthew and Luke just to kind of throw that detail in there. It's not just Peter on his own like saying this. Everyone's like, no, we're totally with you, Jesus. Luke adds... Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So the narrative set us up for Peter. Because we already know, if we've read our gospel so far, that Peter is this towering figure. We love Peter, don't we? Because we see some of ourselves in him. The, you know, how he just puts his foot in it and he just does loads of silly things. And we're like, oh, Peter. We're like, oh, yes, thank goodness they're not all just being amazing. So we love Peter for that. But Peter is this towering figure in the narrative up to this point. This is water walking Peter. This is on this rock, I will build my church, Peter. This is Peter who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This amazing confession. This is Peter who's trusted with the transfiguration. Not all the disciples were trusted with that moment, but Peter was one of the three who was there. This is Peter who casts demons out and goes to towns telling people, about Jesus and healing the sick and coming back and reporting to Jesus all that he's done. At this point, there is no doubt in Peter. He is emphatic. He is sure. He is immovable like his name. His name means rock. And so that we've got this narrative that says, this is the guy. He knows what he's doing. We can trust what he says. If he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. If Jesus says, come to me on the water, Peter's like, 
off we go then. We're water walking today. Didn't know we were, but here we are. He's that kind of character that's like sure, immovable, firm, steadfast. And yet we know what's coming, don't we? We know that the crumbling is coming. The breaking down of who he is. And the narrative is so interesting because it sets Peter up. All the evidence points towards if you didn't know anything about Peter, if you didn't know this story, up to this point, you'd be like, absolutely, Peter's going to do that. And then we find out it happens quite differently. Five chapters, John then devotes to Jesus' teaching, his praying, his beautiful, beautiful scripture, so rich. And then we get to the fulfillment of Jesus' entire ministry. We end up in the garden. We end up with disciples falling asleep, which I can totally relate to that in a minute. We end up with Judas doing what Jesus prophesied, betraying. He brings um, guards into the garden. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. We have Peter attempting murder in the garden. We kind of gloss over that because he just chopped somebody's ear off. But Peter wasn't, I don't think Peter was like going in for facial reconstruction surgery. I, I think Peter was trying to end the guy and was just really bad at it because that wasn't his thing to do. He was a fisherman. So I reckon he was going for the juggler and like hit his ear instead. So Peter attempts murder in the garden very badly. Jesus has to sort it out. And then Jesus is arrested. So we've, got, we've had all this action and then it kind of slows down a little bit in this account and we get to this part in John 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. We think that's the disciple who wrote the book. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So John, we think, who wrote John, goes into the courtyard. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, Are you also not one of these man's this, this man's disciples, are you? And he said... I am not. We arrive at Peter's first denial. A flat out, barefaced lie. He just comes out and says it. To a servant girl. Somebody who really doesn't hold a lot of power in this story. She doesn't hold a lot of weight and a lot of sway. And she just asks him, haven't you been around this guy? Absolutely not. No, never. Just trips off his tongue. And I, I imagine in that moment, Peter was like, oh, wouldn't you just be a little bit shocked if, if, you know, if it came to it and someone was like, you know, do you know Neil? And I was like, no, never met him. I'd be like, that's odd. <laughs> that would, it, it's as odd as that. Somebody that you spent 24 hours a day with, seven days a week, 12 months a year for three years. And you're just like, no, don't know the guy. Verse 18 says this. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And the author uses a, a tiny little detail. And this is the detail that piqued my interest as I was kind of listening through to this very quickly in a day. And it's this detail of a charcoal fire. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. But before he does that, he also says... It was cold. Now, we can just gloss over that because we're thinking, oh, he's just adding, you know, a temperature detail. He's just giving us, like, the bomb update of what was going on at the time in the story. But John's words are never wasted. I love the way that John writes, and he never wastes a word. So if John's telling us something, often 
there's the literal meaning, and then John's really good at kind of cramming in like a metaphorical or a picture meaning at the same time. He does this earlier. It's really classic John writing. He does this earlier when when Judas, Jesus has put, um, prophesied Jesus' betrayal. And then it says about Judas, immediately Judas went out and it was night. Now, yes, that's a time of day detail, but it's also painting this bigger picture of what's going on in Judas's soul. So we have the, if you can imagine it in your mind's eye, because it's real account, it's, it, it's real what happened. So they're together, there's light, there's laughter, there's warmth, there's food, it's family, there's familiarity, they're having the last supper together. It's all this amazing meal. And then Jesus says, somebody in the room, one of these things is not like the other. And somebody in the room is going to betray me. And then Judas makes an excuse and has to go out. And, and if we were going to look at this cinematically, Judas would go out and it would be black. The camera would go to black. And there's just this real stark contrast between the warmth and the community and the togetherness and everybody together. And Judas on his own in the dark, on his, in the cold. He has to go out. He's now no longer with everybody. And it's this physical detail, but also a metaphorical spiritual detail. Judas is in the dark. It's the darkness of his soul and what he's about to do. And John uses that again here. He says it was cold. And yes, it's physically cold because it's way above sea level and at this, in the night it is cold. But it is cold for Peter in a metaphorical sense. Who is Peter stood with? Not friends. Not family. He stood with slaves and officers, some of whom have just arrested Jesus. He's with unfamiliar people. He's alone. He's cold. He's no longer with his brothers and his friends that he's just spent the last three years with. There's no warmth. There's no food. There's no laughter. This is now serious. The camera's shifted. It's really serious, tense moment. He's in an unfamiliar place. This wasn't somewhere Peter frequented, the high priest's house. He's in a courtyard. There's a door that's guarded. He can't just get out of this scenario if he wants to. He's now sort of trapped. It's cold for Peter. There's unfamiliar people. This entire leadership team of the religion that he's believed in and followed his entire life is there. That's intimidating. There's false and, and, and um, hostile witnesses that have been brought in to tell lies about Jesus. They're there. Peter's not in a good place. And he finds himself huddled around a charcoal fire. A charcoal fire. On edge. Being questioned. Out of place. Lying to a servant girl about the last three years of his life. I'm sure internally wondering, where did that come from? What, why on earth did I do, just do that? What, what, what happened? It really is cold for Peter in this moment. Camera then shifts in verse 19, and it tells us that the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them, and they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, because he's telling the truth. But if what I said is right, then why do you strike me? Anna then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And John's 
does this really interesting thing. He, he focuses on Peter and then we switch to Jesus. And in a moment, we're going to go back to Peter. But John's doing this really interesting camera switch thing. Like a smash shot, I think it's called in... Is it, there we go. I've been listening to Neil over my 18 years of marriage <laughs> in film. Where we go from one scene to another and then back to another. And we do that because we want to set up the tension that's happening. There's two scenes happening. Jesus is being falsely accused... But he's innocent and speaking the truth. Peter is being accused and it's accurate and he's lying through his teeth. So you've got Jesus, innocent, telling the truth. Peter, guilty and lying. John wants us to see the big contrast that's happening here. And this is Peter. Water walking Peter. Transfiguration Peter. Peter on this rock I will build my church. Peter. If you're going to expect anybody to follow through, Peter. And we get just this awful moment that comes. John switches back for us. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Peter, I want you to imagine him in this moment. He's by the charcoal fire. There's the crackle and the spit and there's a bit of warmth. And the glow that's on Peter's face, it's dark, it's nighttime, he's warming his hands maybe, and the accusations just keep on coming. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, that's really awkward, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Of the devastating moment of Peter's denial. And we, we, we just speed through this because it's familiar to us. But this, it's just so, it's a devastating account. The rooster crows, which tells us dawn is, is just about to break. So we've gone from like the blackest of black skies. So you know that where it's kind of a little bit inky, where the sun's not up yet. It's not even coming up, but the color just starts to slowly shift. That's, that's what's happening. Peter's character in that shifting light is laid bare for all of us, for time immemorial to see. All that resolve, all that bravado, all the bluster, all the confidence of who Peter thought he could be in this crucial moment that Jesus said has been coming. And he's like, I am going to be there with you to the end. Prison and death, we are in it together. Peter genuinely thinks he can do this in this moment. And he is completely crumbled and he finds out who he truly is. It's devastating. He's confronted with the absolute worst of himself, with his complete weakness, his inability. And in that moment, the other Gospels tell us his character is laid bare with swearing, cursing, panic, and he has utterly failed. And he's alone. And he's huddled around a charcoal fire in the cold, apart from almost every person who loves him. And I wonder, have you been around that kind of charcoal fire? Have you had that feeling of coming face to face with your own weakness, with your own sinful nature, with your own 
inability to do what you really wanted and intended to do. You had good intentions. You really, really wanted to do something or not do something. And then when the moment comes, you fluffed it again. You copped out. You made the wrong decision. You said the wrong thing. Your own moral failure, your own character flaws and failings, that moment where your confidence, that you, you just had that confidence and then it just crumbles in front of you and it's your own fault. Finding out who you really are in a moment and it actually being the worst of yourself. In that lowest of moment, Luke tells us, and this is just, it's such, it's such a moment. If you can put yourself in Peter's shoes here, you're at your worst. And then Luke tells us, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said and went out and wept bitterly. I bet he did. Wouldn't you? And I think in that moment, I don't see, if I put myself into the picture, I don't see Jesus turning with scorn, with derision, with um, maybe there's some disappointment in there, but I don't see him turning and looking at Peter with disgust or anger or what are you doing? I don't, I don't see that because I don't see that in the character of Jesus. I see Jesus turning and looking at Peter with love and compassion and grace and probably sorrow for Peter in that moment. And having let Jesus down so badly, it's, if you've ever done this, you'll know that when, when, you've, when you've done something so serious and it's just a terrible moment, when someone's kind to you, that it makes it worse. <laughs> You're like, don't be kind to me. I'm literally the scum of the earth. Like, be angry. Get, like, shout at me, do something. Because I deserve that. And so when somebody then comes to you with kindness and grace and mercy, you're absolutely aware of how much you do not deserve that. And it makes it worse. It makes you want to run and hide and go and cover yourself because there's shame that comes then. And I'm sure Peter was feeling some of that in that moment. It's a truly devastating account. John then follows in his account of what's going on, the trial, the execution, Rising from the dead, as Chris told us about this morning, fulfilling all that he said, appearing to women and disciples, and there's just this lovely reunion that happens, and Thomas just stuffs it up and <laughs> misses out, and then he just some good stuff and gets, you know, all reinstated, and it's all good for Thomas. And we have all of this joyful reunion that happens after the resurrection. So we have the darkness of this denial and the execution, and then and then we get this joy as Jesus fulfills all that he said he was going to do. And then at the end of John, we get a really intriguing little story. And that's where we're going to end our time together today. It says this in John chapter 21. After all this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, called a twin, that's Doubting Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two of the disciples were together. So in this scene, Peter's not alone now. Peter's with his mates, with his bros, he's with the disciples, he's with people he's familiar with, they've done life together, they've walked an awful lot of miles together. They would like have serious, seriously good calves, like they have done so much walking in the last three years and they're together and they're in a familiar place, familiar friends, brothers. Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing because he's a leader and he just decides to do stuff. 
And they said to him, well, we'll go with you because if Peter's going, well, let's go. Off we go. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So John's setting us up with some parallels and contrasts. We're now at the same time of day as Peter's denial. We're at night because there's good fishing at night, so I hear. I'm never going out because there's sharks, and why would you? We're teaching Liberty about sharks at the minute, and we're teaching her that if she ever comes to a shark, she needs to go bop, bop, bop. So <laughs> not that she'll just get eaten immediately, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll try just in case. So if she ever sees a shark, if we go to Sea Life now, put them in a lullaby, <laughs> she sees the sharks going by, she's like, pop, pop, pop. Like, good girl. That's what you do in Australia. Come on. So, so off they are, fishing at night, because that's the best time when the fish are around, so people tell me. They're in a familiar place now. We're not in a cold courtyard. We're not in a place that's trapped. We're now in the open um, the sea. We're now in the lakes. We're in the shores. We're in familiar places. It's, there's an ease about this part of the account now. We know where we are. We know these waters. We know these shores. We know this equipment. We know this boat. We know what's happening. He's surrounded by people who he loves and that love him. Familiar people with shared experience and things that have the drawn them together. Have you ever had like a really intense experience, like a missionship or something with somebody, and you forever are, you, it's like there's like an invisible tie between the two of you because you shared an experience together. Well, imagine that but over three years, and that's the kind of bond that these disciples have. He is very safe in this moment, Peter. Verse 4 tells us, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. There's obviously some sort of difference in the appearance of Jesus' resurrection body. He can appear and disappear and come through walls, and yet there's something similar or familiar about it because they do recognize that it's him in other instances. And I find that interesting, that little detail, just as day was breaking. So if there's a rooster nearby on the shore, our rooster would be crowing. So we've gone from darkest night as they're all fishing in the boat together. We're now in that inky blue skies just as the sun isn't even coming up yet, but it's starting to come up. We're at the same time of day where Peter lied, betrayed, denied, his character crumbled. And Jesus is also about to repeat the circumstances in which he first came to Peter and asked Peter and called him to follow Jesus. Jesus says to them in verse 5, Children, do you have any fish? He obviously knows the answer to this, but he's doing it for their effect. They answered, No. He said to them, Cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you're going to find some. So they cast it, and now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That's a good day for fishermen. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the author of the book, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. Because Jesus is recreating a set of circumstances. This is like jogging their memory. This has happened to them before where they've been fishing all night. And Jesus says, put your nets on the other side. They catch a really big um, bunch of fish. Jesus is recreating that moment. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. And he threw himself into the sea. Love that. No water walking for Peter here. He is all in. He's salty. He's, he's just like, that. we're now back to classic Peter. You know, we're like in the water, like full pelt. I reckon he probably was going so quick. He like, you know, when you do that bit on the edge of a boat and your foot kind of catches and then you face plant. I see that in this moment because he's not going to be like, Jesus is coming. All right, I'll get my coat on. 
Here we go. All right, everybody steady because I'm going to get out of the boat now. Like, ready? Like, ready? Like, you know, I reckon he was like, no, it's Jesus. I'm like throwing my thing on. I'm going over. I'm face planting. I come up spluttering. And then he has to do that really awkward thing where you're trying to get to the shore really quickly. And you kind of, you don't know whether you need to swim or you're trying to run, but the water's there. So you're kind of wading, doing that weird kind of little, little froggy hop thing that you're trying to do when you're getting back to the shore. That's what's happening in this moment. Really, really awkward. And the other disciples, because they're sensible, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they weren't far from the land, about 100 yards off. Poor Peter has to do this 100-yard sprint, doing that really awkwardly. And when they got out onto land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. There's no accidental details in the Bible. Everything is there for a reason and a purpose. It's the only time in the New Testament where this word is used, and it's only used in these two accounts. It's the only time where, some, where the author is trying to make such a point that he tells us the kind of fire. A charcoal fire, not just kind of any fire. A charcoal fire. The author is adding the detail because he wants us to connect the two events together. He wants us to see what is happening here. The same smell for Peter. The same glow in the same time of day, in the same light. And yet things are totally different than they were. The scene of Peter's biggest betrayal, his failure, his denial, his complete lack of everything that he thought he could and should and would be in that moment, Jesus chooses intentionally to recreate that moment, to reset up the scene for Peter so that he could bring Peter close. And not even that he brings him close, but that he cooks him breakfast. I love that. I would love to be cooked breakfast, like just, and I am every morning. Neil cuts me breakfast. It's toast, but I get a breakfast cooked every morning. And Jesus uses this moment. He recreates the circumstances, the smells, the sounds, everything that would have jogged Peter's senses and thrown him back into this moment of his greatest failure. And he says, okay. In this moment now, I'm going to bring you close. I'm going to cook you breakfast. I'm going to restore you. Not even going to restore you on your own. I'm going to restore you in the company of your friends and your brothers. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon and Peter went, uh, Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. A full large fish, 153 of them. You can totally argue what that 153 means. We don't need it for this story. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, there's no need for Jesus to eat because he's in his resurrection body. 
He doesn't physically have to eat. But food, as you know, like we're doing with our fun day today, food brings people together. You will stay and eat a burger today and you'll talk to people that you've never talked to before simply because there's a burger in front of you. And that sounds a little bit weird, but it's a really good thing and you should do it. Food brings people together and Jesus cooks them a fishy breakfast, not my favourite, but obviously good for them. And in this moment, he serves them still. And he reframes for Peter this charcoal fire moment that I'm sure was still fresh in Peter's mind. And he reframes it into, now this is a place of supply and provision and community and laughter and togetherness and the shades of even the Last Supper that John adds in here because Jesus says that Jesus took the bread and gave it to them. And so there's, there's even like this little shade of the Last Supper that the author's throwing in here to help us see, listen, we're back to where we were in the Last Supper room. We're together. The failure isn't the final word. Now it says, none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. And this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And then we come to this beautiful moment of personal restoration for Peter. As he denied Jesus three times, Jesus offers him a threefold confession to say how much he loves him. And he says this, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It's such a funny sentence. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Can you just see, like, that's completely hypocritical. Peter has no grounds to be grieved in this moment, but he's just, the author just lays it bare because there's still character flaw there for Peter. He's gotten, Jesus could have asked it 79,000 times and it still wouldn't have been too many for what Peter did in that moment. But Peter's upset, as you would be. And he said, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. Yes, he does. And you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And there's, that's like a whole sermon in itself that we're not even going to go into. But Jesus prophesies to Peter, not betrayal, but he prophesies that there's a time going to come when Peter will now not deny Jesus, but Peter will follow him. So we had at the Last Supper, Jesus prophesying Peter's denial. And now Jesus prophesies again and says, when the moment comes, you won't do that again. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Remember our idea of glory? God's idea of glory, very different. And after saying this to Peter, he said to him, follow me. We have this full circle moment where Jesus brings it all round back together. He knits the whole thing in a circle and ties up all the loose ends for Peter and says, you followed me once before and then you failed me. Will you follow me again? You said yes before and then you couldn't follow through. 
but that's okay. Will you follow me again? I know your character and who you are and all of your weakness. And in knowing all of that, follow me. Follow me again. And Jesus says to him, where I'm going, remember right at the start, when in at the Last Supper, Jesus has that conversation with Peter and says, where I am going now, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. And that was absolutely true. Peter thought he could follow Jesus to death in that moment. And Jesus is like, you can't do it now. But he says to him, but you will follow afterward. So Jesus knows. He knows Peter because he made him. And he knows what he's capable of in the bad and in the good. And he comes back to him and says, you thought you could do it before, but you couldn't. And now you can and you will follow me, even to death. He knows Peter's complete inability to follow through, and yet he knows it's not the final scene. He knows for Peter that there's hope beyond his failure. There's a plan beyond Peter's worst moment. There's a path forward after moral crumbling, and that Peter can, in fact, in the future, follow Jesus unto death. And he uses this charcoal fire with the crackle and the smell and the little whiff of smoke and the pop. And he uses the sights and the sounds and the time of day to reinstate Peter. And the invitation comes to him, follow me. So how does this help you this week? Because I'm guessing most of us are not going to find ourselves in the courtyard of a high priest in front of a charcoal fire with somebody saying, do you know Jesus? Like That's probably not going to happen to us this week. But there is some application for us when we look at Peter's story. So the first question is this. And these are quite hard questions. So I encourage you, maybe take a screenshot or jot it down and then work this through in your time with Jesus this week. Has pride found a place in your heart, mind, and mouth? For Peter to so confidently stand up or sit at the Last Supper and say, Jesus, I will follow you and I'll follow you to the death. Even if we go to prison, no matter what happens, we are going to do this together. That's not just bravado and confidence that's a massive blind spot for Peter in his actual ability and his character there's no humility in those statements there's no humility in that statement where Peter can understand I don't have this in me I think I do but I don't and when we have a blind spot in our own character that's it sets us up for a fall And he has pride in his own strength. And if we assume, as we see things in the news and the media and as, you know, things happen in church life and outside of church life, when we see something and we see somebody fall or a moral failure or something that's not right, if there's the thought in our heart, mind or mouth that says that could never happen to me, you've got a massive blind spot and it's setting you up for a fall. Because there, but for the grace of God, go all of us. Truly. We only need all of us, every person on stage, on staff, in the room, in our church, every person only needs the right set of circumstances and the right deficit of soul and the right tiredness 
for us to make decisions that we would be horrified about, that will have significant impacts for ourselves, our families, our future, our jobs, our finances, every single one of us. None of us is immune. None of us has it all together. The right circumstances would mean that we would all regret our decisions. But the antidote to that is for us to stay low, for us to be humble. Paul says it this way, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but rely on the grace. If you think that could never happen to me, that could never happen to my family, I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm saying that thought in your heart, mind and mouth, that creates an environment ready for you to fall because you've already said it can't happen to me. You're not leaning on the grace and the mercy of Jesus in that moment. A good dose of an awareness of your own weakness protects you from betraying those you love most. When you know how weak you are, and that's not that you beat yourself up and you have like terrible self-esteem, but when you're aware that you and I are broken people, that we do not have it together, that in the right set of circumstances, we would all make decisions that we would not be proud of. And that we need Jesus. That's it. We need Jesus. We need him to sustain us, to keep us, to protect us, to walk with us. We cannot do it on our own. We need him. So has pride found a little pocket, found a little foothold? Has it got a little grip waiting for the opportune moment? I wonder if the band could join me this morning. I want to ask you this morning, what kind of charcoal fire are you standing at today? These two fires that John talks about, the contrast with them is stark. They couldn't be more different if they tried. One is isolation. One has community. One has denial. The other has confession. One is a fire of fear. The other is a fire of faith. One is a fire of failure. The other is a fire of restoration. One is at night. The other is at dawn. And there is a daily choice for all of us. Which fire am I going to stand around today? Which fire do I find myself at? I have the capacity to stand at either fire within me every day. I can choose to isolate myself, I can choose to lie, I can choose to deny, I can choose to live in fear, or I can choose to come over here to the fire that Jesus has prepared for me with community, with truth, with confession, with friendship, with food. I want to be at this one because there's food here. It's within each of our power to choose the fire that we stand at. And this week, when you are faced with a choice to deny to shrink back, to lie, to let fear rule, to walk away from Jesus in your finances, in your family, in your future decision-making. Have that moment of realisation, I am at the wrong fire here. Jesus isn't with me at this fire. There's no community at this fire. It feels cold at this fire. I'm going to come over to this fire that Jesus has prepared for me. I'm going to come and stand here where there's community and faith and confession and food, and warmth, and where Jesus pulls the threads of my life back together. I'm going to be at this fire. The invitation is there every day. Which fire are you standing at? And maybe you need that invitation specifically to you from Jesus today to say, come and have breakfast 
He's prepared it for you. He's thought about your needs. He's provided in advance for you. He's here to walk you through your own weakness and to restore you gently to who he made you to be. Last question is this. Where have you recently failed and you need to hear again the invitation of Jesus? Follow me. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about significant moral failure this week, although in a room of this size, there will be a number of people for whom that is like, have you read my mail this week? This is me. And I haven't, but it's the Holy Spirit and his kindness that leads you to repentance. But really what I'm thinking for most of us, it will be where we've recently failed is maybe we've failed in how we think this week. Maybe your thoughts haven't been the thoughts of Christ. Maybe you've not had the mind of Christ over some certain circumstances. I could put my hand up for that. Maybe the motivations of your heart and why you're doing something or why you said something or why you tried to maneuver a certain conversation or a situation and the motivation of your heart towards a circumstance. Nobody else would know, but you know what you're trying to do. And you know that it's not really actually what God wants for you. Maybe you failed this week because you turned the worries of the week over in your mind more than you've turned the pages of your Bible this week. I'd put my hand up for that. Different things going on in my life that I could have spent way more time at the feet of Jesus saying, I don't have any of the answers for this, but I know you do. But instead, I thought I'll, I'll, I'll try and mitigate. I'll try and plan because that's my personality. I'll try and, you know, help make things better as if Jesus needs my help to sort my life out. I put my hand up for that. I wonder if this week you failed with a negative confession. That the words off your mouth this week haven't been positive and full of faith. They've been fearful. Or maybe this week there's been silence from your lips when you should have spoken. In that failure, as you close your eyes with me today, in the failure that the Holy Spirit just brought to your mind because he's kind and gracious, in that space, I want you just to take a moment now to hear the invitation of Jesus afresh to you specifically, personally, because he loves you and he cares for you to follow me. The invitation comes again. Come have breakfast. The invitation comes again. Come sit around the fire with me. Come find your restoration in community. Come find hope in me again. Come have me love you at your worst and at your weakest. Come back and follow me. So in that place, just take a moment now to repent. Say sorry to Jesus for your failure. 
and ask him to lead you and guide you through your weakness to who he has already destined you to be.